Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. This podcast is a six-second stories production. Six Second Stories is a video marketing agency that tells heartfelt stories to help you maximize your impact and inspire action in minimal time. Check out more about what we do at SixSecondStories.com. Hello, all my compelling storytellers out there. Today's episode of the Storytelling Lab is a special episode from our Health and Happiness Storytelling Series. Today's story is from Joshua Gunn, a.k.a. Jay Gunn, and this came from our final Health and Happiness Storytelling Night about community health. Josh is, I really don't even know where to begin to describe the amount of respect I have for Josh, who is also a friend of mine. Um, I initially met Josh, I mean, I've known Jay Gunn's music, for a while. And if you aren't familiar, he's been a, a Durham hip hop artist since he was like 13. And he's toured all over the world and performed with major acts. And you may know him from his verse on G. Yamazawa's North Kek, which was the summer anthem of 2016, at least down here in the South. And G. Yamazawa was very familiar with the reputation of Jay Gunn and wisely, in my opinion, featured him on the track. Um, but I had Josh over to my house once for an interview. I was working on a project that got shelved 
on North Carolina hip hop, but we got some really great interviews from that. And I, I think I will start releasing some of those. And we talked for a long time about the hip hop community, what it means to be an artist, um, and, and continue to be an artist, especially when you're not necessarily mainstream. We talked a lot about that for the documentary. Like how do we, how do we sustain and make a living as a professional artist and just the normal person, right? Trying to be a, a good community member. And I realized then, and I liked his music already, but I realized then like what he stood for and what I respected about him. And so we kind of became friends after that and stayed in touch. And since then, I realized how much of a community leader he was and just saw the moves that he was making, whether just show, showcasing how to be a great father, standing up for what's right, like via his social media channels and being active out there in the public. And I know he was working for the Chamber of Commerce, but then recently last year, he ran a campaign for city council. And this is someone, he, he's a little bit younger than I am, but, but he's a millennial also. I'm an elder millennial. Um, and he just really lives into his purpose and practices what he preaches. And so he, I think he was just tired of seeing Durham change into something that was different than the Durham that he loved so much as a, as a native, you know, fourth generation Durhamite, as he says. So he said, you know what, I'm going to not just talk about it. I'm going to be about it. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to run for city council. And he did. And so when I saw him running and I knew what he was up against because the people who he was running against had been part of the council for years, maybe even longer, and they had tons of money and support behind their campaigns. And so I reached out and said, hey, let's make some videos to get your message out there because I knew if you just captured this guy and put put his content out there, it would it would work. It would resonate with people. And so we did, and it did. Now, unfortunately, Josh did not make the city council this year. I hope that he runs again, but I don't, I don't know what's next for him. But he missed the third seat by 600 seats, I believe. Now, this is among candidates who are getting 18,000 votes or something like that. And I'll just say this. He came in fourth, and the fifth place candidate got thousands less than he did. He was up there almost made just shy of the top three, had never run before, had no money behind his campaign, going up against people who had been there for years and had lots of money, and all we really had was the power of message and the power of media, social media, and we used it. So I invited him on, this is right before the election, I think, and I invited him to the Health and Happiness storytelling series to talk about not necessarily his campaign, but why he decided to run, to tell the story of why he decided to run. And he talks about how to make a better community, how to navigate Durham as it grows and fight back against gentrification and pushing people out of their their homes and their towns and maintain and sustain the culture of Durham that we all love. He talks about education reform. He talks about policing. He talks about sustainability and affordable housing. And he just, I think, has such a great insight as to how we can move forward as a community, protecting the things that we care about and making better the things that need improvement. So this is a story about Durham from my friend Joshua Gunn. I hope you enjoy it. 
my story begins uh, in Durham. Uh, I think um, I want to talk to you a little bit about why I decided to run for office. So uh, this won't be a campaign speech, just much more about why I thought it was important uh, for, for me to run and, and help make the community that I love better. So I was born here, born in Durham. I always say I'm a fourth generation Durhamite. My great-grandfather moved to Durham just one generation removed from slavery. Uh, after emancipation, he heard about this place called Durham where economic opportunity existed for black folks in a way that uh, didn't exist in other places in the South. So uh, at 15 or 14, he decided to move here and look for a job. And he found work at the McPherson Hospital, which is now a residence inn uh, on Main Street, if you know where that residence inn is. Um, and so my family's been here ever since on my father's side. My mother is from Germany. My mother was born in East Germany. And at five years old, she escaped uh, right before the completion of the Berlin Wall uh, and grew up the early, the next three years of her life in a refugee camp. So two very different sort of uh, starts for my family, but um, you know, equally uh, tied to the sort of concept of overcoming uh, some very, really dire circumstances, right? My father's side of the family sort of overcoming atrocities of 400 years worth of chattel slavery. My mother uh, escaping an, uh, an oppressive regime in East Germany and literally growing up with nothing for the, for the most of her life. And um, she tells a story that her grandmother, my grandmother, her mom, uh, found a job in the refugee camp that paid a dollar a day, which was more money than, better than nothing, I suppose. And she peeled potatoes for a potato farmer. She would peel the potatoes, but a dollar a day wasn't quite enough to always feed the family. So she would also steal potatoes and she and my, my mom would eat raw potatoes, like apples. So, you know, I mean, just think about kind of that as a, a humble beginning, right? Like that is, um, you know, I get super emotional just thinking about that. Um, because I have kids of my own, and I can't imagine what it must be like to you know, raise a child in that environment. But nonetheless, my parents met uh, in the military. My father was in the Air Force, uh, and lived, my dad lived in Germany for 15 years. They ended up coming back to Durham, his hometown, uh, in the 80s, right before I was born. So I'm the first of my father's seven children to be born uh, here in Durham. So back where it all started, essentially. So born and raised here with a deep and rich appreciation for the community. Um, I was raised to believe that Durham was the greatest city in the world. My dad spent all of his time in the military bragging about his hometown, and uh, he's had the chance to live in so many cool places and you know, much bigger metropolitan areas. But he was, if you, ever, if, you, if you think I love Durham, you meet my dad, you'll realize that there is a bigger cheerleader for Durham than, than me, and it, it's him. So you know, in my house, there was this constant reminder that Durham was a special place, and we were fortunate to be here. And you know, our ancestors uh, you know, sort of helped build this place, and uh, we belonged here, and there was no better place to be but Durham. Uh, and it kind of worked a little bit until I got to high school, and all my friends were like, man, I can't wait to get out of this place. What about you? Uh, and if you were, has, is anybody from Durham in here? Okay, a few, few folks. So uh, if you were here in the 90s, you remember Durham was a different place. It was a little slower, uh, much smaller, and really felt like a place on the downswing, right? Felt like it was a place that was sort of dying. Industry had left in the 80s, tobacco was gone. Um, 
there was a mall at South Square, a mall at Northgate, and some jobs at Duke, and that was really about it, right? Uh, came downtown to pay the water bill, and maybe if you were late on the power bill, you also had to come downtown to pay that, which we were frequently late on all of our bills growing up. Um, so we, that's the only time I saw downtown, and, and uh, still remember the smell of tobacco as a kid, and that would be cool if we could bring that back. It was, it was one of my favorite parts about coming to pay the water bill, was smelling the, the smell of tobacco. Um, but nonetheless, Durham felt like a dying place when I was a kid, and um, I decided to leave. I went to North Carolina A&T for college, and immediately had an experience that was similar to my dad's. There's nothing like leaving your hometown to uh, sort of make you proud of your hometown again, right? It was like, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Durham. Where's that? You know what I mean? Or, wow, wow Durham, that's, I heard that place was dangerous, or I heard it was dirty, or I heard it was, yeah, good thing you're not there anymore. And it gives you this sort of chip on your shoulder, and it sort of reignited my pride for the city. Um, at the same time, uh, I was making music. I've been making music since I was seven years old. I'm a hip-hop artist. Uh, I had the chance to tour the world. I performed in 15 international countries, uh, done television. I've scored movies. I've starred in movies. I've done all these amazing things that also uh, sort of embolden this pride in our city because you're in front of a room full of people and you're talking about where you come from and your experiences. And uh, it just sort of all that combined into me becoming this I guess, cheerleader for the city of Durham. Um, and so I went to A&T, represented the city, and loved my city so much, but apparently didn't love it enough to come back right away because I continued to pursue my career, and I lived in Philly and L.A. and spent some time in New York until my father got sick. So my dad had a stroke <laughs> in 2009, um, had prostate cancer right around the same time. My dad uh, is a diabetic. He has heart disease. He has sort of you know, in a, I guess a dark humor sort of way, if you play black health crisis bingo, my dad checks a lot of the squares. Um, and, you know, gradually his health was getting worse and I was out sort of chasing my dreams and realized that maybe my dad won't make it much longer and I really wanted that sense of community and, and, and also to be close to my parents and my family just in case, you know, as she mentioned time is a privilege, time is a, and we don't know how much time we have left. So I moved back to Durham and uh, immediately noticed that our community had changed. And my first impression of this changed community was positive. So uh, remind you, I sort of spent time in these bigger cities on the East Coast and really took a liking to like urban living, which wasn't a part of my childhood here. There wasn't any residential property downtown when I was a child. Um, so I came back and it was like, oh shoot, we got a downtown now and there's places to live and there's bars and restaurants and all the things that I loved about sort of the bigger cities right here in my hometown. So I was like, this is cool. Um, so I decided to move downtown. I got me a place on Main Street and really wanted to immerse myself in the new Durham. Um, and at first I thought it was really cool. I spent, you know, I go to Alley 26 or to Whiskey or to, you know, a cool live music venue. Like, Casbah was still here, I think, and Motorco was just opening. I was like, damn, we have all the things, all the things I want as a young, single person in a downtown. But as I looked a little deeper, I noticed that uh, folks that I remembered from growing up were not here anymore. Folks that have been here for generations were not present in downtown. Um, and it started to feel very much like a shell of its former self. And I what I loved about Durham growing up, you know, remember there wasn't a lot of things, there weren't a lot of buildings or places to go, but the people were so amazing. And 
uh, you know, the summer camps I would go to and the programs I would, I would spend time in and the elders that I would, I would talk to and just this amazing community of people, the resiliency of the people, um, and those people were gone. I couldn't find them. And I was like, man, this community has changed in ways that I don't like also. Um, and so I leaned in a little bit to uh, what I'll call community organizing work, which I use loosely because I have a great deal of respect for what real organizers do. But our organizing was specifically around the lack of people of color, particularly black folks, in a city with such a rich black history in our downtown core. Um, because before I left, there were black folks everywhere. And now there aren't. And so I'm like, man, what? What can we do? So we started this movement called Black August in the Park, which uh, is a festival. Uh, is, we, is, we're on our fifth year of this festival, but it really started um, as a way for us to just make space for black people in downtown, right? A space where we could remember that we still have a community that's 50% black and a community that has an amazing, uh, rich uh, black history. And, and so Black August in the Park was born out of that work. Um, and so doing that work, I, I was like, okay, so I'm gonna lean into this social justice space and, and sort of figure out what I can do to sort of reclaim the city that I loved before I left. Uh, and that city, to me, represented a place where all voices were valued, where our history and our legacy mattered, and where uh, we were able to move forward together, right? And so we did that work, and then I started to notice another troubling trend, and some would call it gentrification, some would call it a lack of affordability, some would call it uh, economic inequality um, <coughs> became, excuse me, it became a little bit drastic to me in meeting with uh, families and, and folks that through Black August that I didn't even know growing up but have been here for generations and are like, man, yeah, you know, I'm, lose, I'm having to move out of my neighborhood, I'm moving to Granville County or Alamance County or Orange County and uh, because I can't afford to stay here. And that also bothered me. So I started to lean into um, economic development work. How does that work? How are communities developed? And uh, sort of serendipitously, I suppose, and sort of me studying that work, I got a call for a job, and I'll spare you the story of the interview process, but I took a job at the Chamber of Commerce uh, doing economic development work for the city. And my Black August in the Park friends and, and organizing folks are like, why are you working at the Chamber, man? That's like the antithesis of everything that we stand for, right? And my thought was, I need to get on the inside of this thing and figure out how we can make uh, a city that's growing uh, grow in an equitable fashion and in a way that doesn't displace folks and in a way that creates opportunities to help us close the income inequality gap. So I've been doing that work for three years um, and being surrounded sort of adjacent to political movements at the chamber. We are a non-political organization, um, but we work with politicians often. And uh, would sit in spaces and rooms and hear this data about Durham um, that confirmed many of the things that I'd identified since I returned, but that was also really alarming. So one of the biggest data points that was sort of thrown out casually at a meeting with the mayor was that 20% of our residents live in poverty. Um, <laughs> in sort of support of that, we have one of the highest poverty rates in all of North Carolina, and that really was like, damn. But it was sort of just thrown out casually and we sort of moved on and we started talking about affordable housing or transit or whatever the issue of the day was. And that just really didn't sit well with me. It really bothered me that 
20% of people, which actually equates to almost 60,000 folks, I guess a little over 50,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's bigger than most cities in the United States, and 50,000 plus folks in our community are in poverty. So I started to wonder, what are we doing about it, right? What are we doing about poverty in Durham? And I couldn't get any answers. Um, I heard things like, the, you know, we're going to focus on affordable housing, um, which is important, but affordable housing initiatives absent of a real economic strategy to create opportunities, traditionally serve people who are already not in poverty, right? An affordable housing plan mostly serves people who are already working, right? People who already can afford something. It does very little to help lift people out of poverty. So uh, I leaned in a little bit and asked some really difficult questions and couldn't get the answers that I wanted or needed. Uh, and I juxtaposed that against the work that I was doing at the chamber, which was creating jobs. My job at the chamber is to work with businesses to either bring them here or help them expand, which then in turn creates jobs for people in Durham. And the biggest hurdle for me to do that work was our city council. And I would say, hey, this company wants to come to Durham. They want to bring 400 jobs. They want to for the training, the jobs pay a, more than a living wage, they're fully benefited jobs, and this is the, if you want to talk about what pushed me over the edge, it was this response. Yeah, but those jobs aren't for Durham folks. So as a Durham folk, right, someone who's born and raised here and really proud to be from here, I would say, well, what, what the hell does that mean? What is a Durham folk? What is a job for Durham folks? And if you sort of lift up the hood and look deeper into what that means, it means these aren't jobs for black folks. These are IT jobs, these are engineering jobs, these are software development jobs, these ain't jobs for those folks. And most of the people saying that are people with those jobs, right? People that are professors at Duke or lawyers or engineers. Yeah, but don't, we don't need those jobs. Those aren't, those aren't jobs for Durham folks. Let's talk about some service jobs, or let's talk about some coffee jo shop jobs, or shout out to Justin, or <laughs> let's, let's talk about some hotel jobs, which are great, which are great jobs, right? But as, I mean, we, we, we know that a pathway out of poverty is difficult. It's difficult to create a pathway out of poverty even with a $15 an hour job, right? If it's because $15 an hour juxtaposed against generations of debt, it's still really challenging to lift yourself up, and I'm talking to folks about $72,000 a year jobs or $80,000 a year jobs. Um, so that statement really made me think about running for office. I was like, you know what? First step, I'm going to meet with everybody on council and sort of get their pulse. And got varying reactions, right? We don't have time to talk about all seven of the conversations. But what I noticed was noticeably absent from those conversations was a perspective that was tied to the history and legacy of Durham and this, uh, this belief that we can do better. We can do better than 50,000 people in poverty. That is, that is the crux of my message. The belief that it is possible to lift people out of poverty. Um, it is possible to make our communities safe. Um, I think economics and safety are directly tied to one another. I think when people have the ability to meet their basic needs, we're all safer. Um, so I had seven of those conversations and couldn't get the answer that I wanted, couldn't get the answer that I was looking for, and I couldn't find a person 
um, that represented the perspective of the thousands and thousands of folks that I grew up with and that have been here for a long time. Now, I want to be clear about something because most of y'all moved here and we're happy that you're here, right? I'm really happy that Durham is a welcoming place and that you found a home here. And I would never say that just because you're not from here that this ain't your home because we're happy to have you. Um, but what I will say is if this place can be a home for, for, for you and for all of us who are doing well, I think it's our responsibility to make sure that it's a home for those who are not benefiting from what's happening right now and who are not standing up here looking at this beautiful view or driving in a nice car or living in a nice place. Uh, and that's why I'm running for office, because I believe that better is possible. I don't think this is as good as it gets. I know compared to the 90s that this is, this is amazing. It's amazing to have a 27-story tower and, you know, Deepak is here and have a new stadium. But when I was a kid and I was wanting to play basketball, I came home one day from work, and this is going to make my dad sound like a really hard dad. He was not. But I came home from basketball, and I scored 13 points, and I felt like I was the man. I was like, Dad, I scored 13 tonight. It was like eighth grade. I scored 13 tonight. I had maybe like five assists. And I'm not the most athletic guy. You could probably look at me and guess that. But it felt really good for me. I was like, man, I killed it. And uh, so my dad's like, you're going to get up in the morning and go get your shots in the backyard. But I used to get up in the morning and go shoot on my backyard basketball goal. I was like, no, nah, I think I'm going to take the day off, man. I I'm feeling like the man. I'm just going to play, two, play uh, NBA Live and just you know, reminisce about the shots. And he said, so you think that's good enough? And he said, as one of his favorite quotes, if he said, good is never good enough if better is possible. And you, if you follow me, if you've seen the videos that Rain made for me, that's the mantra of my campaign, that I believe that better is possible. And I think that we have to do better for future generations and for the now. We can do better than 50,000 people in poverty. We can do better than a 20% rise in violent crime. We can do better than a city that is result that has essentially stated that people can't lift themselves up out of poverty, so we have to give them something and, and give them a Band-Aid. To me, that's defeatist and that's paternalistic, and it bothers me deeply. As a dumb person, the belief that we can't do better and help others do better. So. Now you know where I come from. Now you know why I'm running. I really hope that you all will also believe that we can do better. And whatever that means, doesn't mean just voting. It doesn't mean just um, you know, saying it or typing it or hashtagging it. But I, I implore you to think about how we can do better for the 50,000 plus people and families that are struggling to meet their basic needs in our city. I truly believe that better is possible. And I thank you all for the time and the energy and hope we can do this together. Thank you. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow, and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.